0: Hello and a warm welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. We have been working our way through Shakespeare's history tetralogy, or at least part of it, a vast double tetralogy of eight plays that chronicle actual English history from about the year 1400 all the way to the end of the Plantagenet dynasty and the accession of the Tudor dynasty a little bit before Shakespeare's own time, based on actual history, in other words. The first play chronologically was Richard II, which we have discussed in past episodes, in which Richard is actually deposed and finally killed, in Act 5, not to mention real life, and the man who opposed him, Harry Bolingbroke, rises to the throne as Henry the Fourth. He is not merely a usurper because Bolingbroke does come from the royal line. He is a son of one of the fabled sons of... King Edward III. So he is in line, but he is not properly on the throne. He is on the throne through having overthrown, with help, Richard II, who was king because he was the eldest son of the eldest son of the seven sons of Edward III. Sounds complicated, but it's really just family history. At any rate, Henry IV, Part I, the second play, takes place a year after Richard II. Conditions have changed, but conditions have most certainly not gotten any better. These history plays, in a larger sense, a sense of standing back and looking at larger thematic patterns, one of the primary things that they're about is social order maintained and guaranteed by the rule of law, and what happens when the rule of law is set aside. That makes them powerfully relevant to modern times and the contemporary crisis. At least in the United States where I am, but I would say also around the world, because we have witnessed in the last half dozen or more years vast groups of people intent on overthrowing the rule of law for their own purposes. On one level, Shakespeare's history plays are and had been used as propaganda for the ruling party for the Tudor dynasty. And it was often assumed that Shakespeare was a sort of willing propagandist. After all, his company of men were sponsored by the court and later became, under James I, after Elizabeth, became known as the king's men. They actually procured themselves an even closer relationship to the court, but There are larger questions in Shakespeare's mind than simply sucking up to the powers that be. And as I say, these plays become powerfully contemporary. Good literature not only does not wear out or become obsolete, however many ideological foibles may be present in the works, but they become at the same time. They may be blind in certain ways, they may be sexist, they may be racist, they may be imperialist, but there is something in them, at least in my way of looking at things, that makes them at the same time powerfully relevant and they never wear out. It's fascinating when you teach and read literature over the course of a long lifetime in the way that I have, the new meanings that old works take on, the new relevance, not because the works have changed, but because we have changed, society has changed, and new conditions, new problems, new crises are reflected in the most remarkable way in the old works of literature, which can be used, and I have used it, as an argument for continuing even as we welcome new voices and whole groups of people into the world of writing at the same time it is an argument to keep looking at the old canon despite its limitations and that is definitely true of shakespeare and of these plays what happens when law is set aside because Richard, at least as Shakespeare portrays him, historians argue about the portrait of Richard II. But as Shakespeare portrays Richard, Richard was really an impossible king. He was immature. He was mentally questionable, shall we say. He was incompetent to run a country and wasn't really interested in running a country. His interest in the kingship was entirely in the realm of the imagination, something that, by the way, gives him a certain kinship with Hotspur in the play that we're about to return to. Nevertheless, as his uncle John of Gaunt warns him on John of Gaunt's deathbed, you only maintain your throne through the rule of law and proper succession. If you set that aside, you set aside all sanction for your own continued stability. And what John of Gaunt is talking about is the plan of Richard II to confiscate confiscate the estates of Henry Bolingbroke after the death of John of Gaunt, which will happen right offstage, but right after the scene in which John of Gaunt tries to warn and immature and out of reality. Richard, don't do this. John of Gaunt dies. Richard immediately for the sake of money, confiscates the estates of a man he has already exiled, and Bolingbroke promptly returns with an army, deposes Richard II, and it ends in the death of the king and the accession of Henry as Henry IV. Now we move... A year later, to the first of two plays, Henry the Fourth, part one. It's a year later and there is no peace in England. This usurpation or change has brought no peace, quite the contrary. What has happened here? Because what we see is continued uprisings. The Celts are rising up and they are going to continue to rise up in the course of Henry the fourth part one specifically the Welsh under Owen Glendower whom we'll be meeting a minor but memorable Shakespeare character to put it mildly and the Scottish Douglas rising up in the north meanwhile Henry's allies, the people who actually helped him gain the throne, are alienated from him. And by the end of the first act, as we have seen in the previous couple of weeks, they are themselves beginning to plot rebellion. They're plotting instead of fighting against the Celts as they have been doing. They are going to join with them, and Henry is going to face a massive attempt to overthrow him after barely a year on the throne. What has happened? Why are the English, the Celts are always alienated and have, heaven knows, good historical reason for that, but why are the English allies so against Henry after a year? Has he been acting high-handed and arbitrary in the way that Richard used to do? because now these supposed allies are talking in very nostalgic terms about Richard and they're basically having a sort of political buyer's remorse here. Oh, maybe it was a mistake that we overthrew the man that Hotspur refers to as Richard, that sweet lovely rose. He was not a rose that smelled very sweet to them a year ago. What has happened? There is no indication whatsoever that Henry has been a bad king or treated his allies unfairly. So we are made to infer what is going on. And what is going on is a study in political psychology, it seems to me. When... There is a chance when rule of law, backed up if necessary, of course by force, does not prevent it. When you remove the social order and the constraints it imposes, and people are released, so to speak, and on their own in what Milton called license rather than true liberty, when people are removed from social sanctions certain things can happen to certain people among the upper class which we have seen in some of the scenes of henry IV, people like northumberland and worcester northumberland's son hotspur these people are the aristocracy and When the rule of law is removed, they rise up. Why? Some of them may be thinking of the main chance. Well, if we get rid of this guy, I could become king too. No one says anything or indicates anything like that in the play, but it's always a possibility. More largely and more psychologically, it is simply a matter of people... Especially aristocracy, who have a sense of privilege and entitlement of nobody's going to tell me what to do. And therefore, aristocracy, and this is historically true not just of this group here, aristocracy have always had a tendency to rise up against king and any order that would restrain their high-handedness and that is probably true of some of this group. They are restless because they don't like to be told anything. Others who gather to the cause may be simply psychologically dysfunctional in certain ways, and that would be Hotspur, who is a fascinating psychological study A man who gets drawn into this partly because of course he's related he's the son of Northumberland but partly also because of his psychological makeup which we will continue to trace he is one of the most memorable characters in all of the history plays far more memorable than Prince Hell, at least in my opinion even though he only lasts through this play nevertheless His particular psychological makeup has driven him into rebellion. Hotspur is the kind of guy who would rebel against anybody and everybody simply because he's Hotspur. He was given that nickname. His name is really Harry Percy, so you notice a mirror relationship. Henry Bolingbroke becoming Henry IV, Harry Percy, and also young Prince How? So they all have the same name and there's all a kind of, speaking of psychology, a kind of psychological reflection going on. And much of this is historical, but Shakespeare is certainly designing and bringing out these symmetries and reflections. At any rate, the upper classes are revolting because they are the restless upper classes and some of them are dysfunctional. And then we move to follow Prince Hal, who is hanging out with the lower social classes, who are basically running wild and rampant. We have issues of law and order, another contemporary social anxiety, at least in the United States at the moment. The lower classes are running rampant. They are robbing people. There is crime that is sweeping the nation and they are doing so because there, are, there is not the enforcement of the law that there should be under the present conditions of England. And Hal, the prince, the man who is going to be the principal of law and order someday, is hanging out with a bunch of robbers, led by, at least in a sort of informal sense, led by, to show how far the disorder goes, Sir John Falstaff. Sir John it is a striking anomaly that this man with a title should be in at least a rough sense the ruler or at least center of gravity, which becomes a pun in Falstaff's case, of a gang of people who go out and rob people in the moonlight. The, ish, the imagery of the moon versus the sun runs through this play and gives it a link with Shakespeare's other plays of this period, particularly Midsummer Night's Dream, where things move outdoors into the night and the moonlight and strange anarchy happens. And also Romeo and Juliet, these plays have a kind of linkage. All of them were written within about one to two years and similar preoccupations reflecting, reflected by similar imagery and this constant imagery of the moon, and also of time. The moon tells time, and there are constant references to what time it is. The time needs to be redeemed. Hal speaks in his soliloquy of redeeming time. Hal, hanging out with Falstaff and the gang, and when we left off last time, we follow them to an actual caper, these men don't really need to be robbing. This is not Robin Hood. These guys are not, you know, robbing the rich to give to the poor. They're robbing the rich to give to themselves, and they don't even need to do that. They're just a gang of -of out-of-control, adolescent mentality kind of people, because the prince has been paying all their bills. They are being subsidized, to show you how far Hal has gone in this, They have been subsidized, at least when they hang out in the tavern, by Hal, who is paying the tab, out of the royal coffers. In other words, he's taking his dad's money, or at least the state's money, and subsidizing a bunch of figures who are anti-law and order, and having a great time of it. Why are they doing this when they don't need to? It's fun. They are merry pranksters and they are out in the moonlight in uh, act two, scene two, at Gad's Hill, robbing some people that they know are traveling while carrying money. And then on top of that, there's a prank within a prank as Poins and the Prince disguised themselves and robbed the robbers, because the idea is not to take the money That's of no concern. The idea is to have fun because they know that all of them are cowards and they'll all run when they themselves are accosted. And Falstaff will come back and lie through his teeth about what happened and they are going to have a great time listening to the inventiveness of his gargantuan lies and then teasing him about it once they reveal themselves. And it goes, Exactly that way. In Act 2, Scene 2, the robbers are robbed. Everybody goes flying into the night. And we move in Scene 3 back to the serious scenes of a much more serious conspiracy than the low-life robbery. The constant moving back and forth between the low-life characters and Falstaff on the one hand and the high level political jockeying on the other, clearly deliberate, clearly part of Shakespeare's idea about what's going on in this play. And act two, scene three is Hotspur reading a letter and we never hear the whole contents of the letter. He reads some of it out loud and makes very exasperated commentary on what the letter writer is saying and we don't know who the writer is it doesn't matter the whole idea is that somebody is casting grave doubts on the advisability and the possibility of the enterprise of rebellion that the gang of aristocrats are spreading around and proposing somebody is backing away from it suggesting that there are good reasons to doubt the feasibility and the reality anchored quality of this rebellion and Hotspur will have none of it Hotspur is just fuming at this letter well, the quality of, your, uh, quality of your allies is dubious. The writer is saying, will they stand with you when it gets tough? Oh, of course they will. And spoiler alert, they won't. The anonymous writer is quite correct about that. But Hotspur will have no caution, will have no doubts, will have no detached skepticism about this. He can only see it as a kind of cowardice. And then, oh my god, a woman in this play. We have already seen, starting in Richard II, the not exactly feminist role of women in these plays. And this is not Shakespeare making commentary, except in a maybe subversive way, implying that he's quite aware that when you get male power politics in a traditional setup like this one women are marginalized and basically victims they have no power of their own they can only attempt to influence the men who are the power players and that is what hotspur's wife here in act two scene three is trying to do her name is kate in the play in actual history Her name was Elizabeth. And Shakespeare doesn't change a whole lot in these plays. He doesn't arbitrarily arbitrarily manipulate history by any means. And he usually has a very good reason for doing so, usually in order to bring out certain thematic symmetries. And this one seems so arbitrary. Why change the name of a basically minor character To what purpose, to what end? And I can't prove it, but I have a theory about that. I think there is something that Shakespeare is quietly suggesting. So much of Shakespeare's artistry is under the surface and depends on a very astute reader or audience. And you wonder whether he thought that most of the readers or audience would get it, but it's there at any rate. What I have in mind is this, looking forward to Henry V, where Prince Hal has become Henry V after Henry IV dies, and has a very successful career for as long as it lasts. Uh, chronicled to some degree in the play Henry V, and in that play Hal, now Henry V, is in France and woos a woman named Catherine. And the parallel, therefore, between Hotspur on the one hand and Hal, later Henry V, on the other, is reflected, I think, even in this minute change of names, they both are connected. With a woman that Shakespeare insists on calling Kate or Catherine. And Henry V's intended bride doesn't speak English and he doesn't speak French. So there is a hilarious scene of them, of uh, Henry trying to woo a woman in a language that he doesn't know. And we will see that reflected in Henry IV, Part One later where the bride of mortimer is welsh the daughter of owen glendower she doesn't speak english and he certainly doesn't speak welsh they're so madly wedding couple in love with each other that it hardly matters but at any rate we see these little symmetries the fascination of shakespeare at any rate here we have kate in real life elizabeth trying to bring her husband at least a little bit, down to earth, which is kind of her role in this relationship. And the poor woman, unfortunately, has no means of pulling it off. It's not her fault. Nobody can really pull Hotspur down to earth. That is what makes him memorable in a way, but it also is his tragedy, that he can never be controlled in a way that anchors him in reality. And... Kate questions him and says in significant wording, more minor but significant touches, what is it that carries you away? Meaning in the sense of being carried away emotionally by something. And uh, Hotspur says, my horse. Okay. I always, when I teach these plays, tell students that you should think in terms, not just as a literary critic or interpreter, but of actors and directors. What would you make of that line if you were the actor playing Hotspur? You can change the whole meaning of a line by the way that you speak it, the expression that you speak it with, which then conveys something to the audience. And you could, at least I think, have the Hotspur actor say, well, my horse. In other words, somebody who's so out of it that he's obtuse and doesn't even get it. He doesn't even understand what she's saying. We note also the significant phrasing of being carried away. If anything is true of is it's that a pin can drop and he is carried away in some way. He's a helium balloon that needs to be pulled down to earth. And you could portray him as simply obtuse. Well, my horse, what are you talking about? Or, and you'll see why I bring this issue up later when we see the interplay and dialogue between Hotspur and Kate, or it could be a witty joke. Well, my horse, dear. We'll see why, as I say, we question that, and it reflects on the nature of this marriage. How... In this play, has no woman, has no love figure or wife figure, and there isn't even a hint of any interest in that direction on his part. He is all politics, all plotting. Hotspur may not be quite all there in certain ways, but he's an attractive character in other ways. He is one of the two most memorable figures in this play other than Falstaff. And like Falstaff, he is the object of a a good deal of humor even though in both cases there is a tragedy that hangs about it despite or with the humor. And in a remarkable passage, Kate, Hotspur's wife, says will you calm down and describes how even when he's asleep this guy cannot calm down he is totally hyperactive even when he's sleeping he's restless he's sweating shakespeare's observations of realistic psychology are often just totally striking and sometimes they take place within a short passage or even a line at any rate uh, we have this passage of Hotspur refusing to listen to what will turn out to have been very realistic cautions. Meanwhile, we go back to the tavern in Act Two, Scene Four. Back and forth, back and forth. And Scene Four in the second act is the kind of act where you sometimes just get the suspicion that Shakespeare must have had actors that he needed to employ, and so he writes a kind of filler scene to employ them. But I doubt that that's true, and it's never a safe assumption. We should not at least operate on that assumption. We should operate with the assumption that there may be a serious purpose to this we may not always be gratified or we may not always figure out what that purpose was but it's always worth setting that up as a possibility and then thinking about it and seeing what we get. Here we have what seems like a totally serious business again more of these people with way too much time on their hands inventing practical jokes the humor of the gang of robbers consists mostly of practical jokes. Even the robbing is really just for the fun of it a kind of enlarged practical joke. But practical jokes played on Falstaff, played on everybody and here played upon a poor hapless employee of the tavern, a little young fellow named Francis whose job is to serve everybody in the tavern and he's a very nervous, anxious young fellow, very naive, and he knows his job depends on satisfying the customers. So as a joke, Holland points from opposite ends of the tavern, both call for him in no uncertain terms. Waiter, over here, over here. And they drive this poor fellow to the brink of a nervous breakdown because he is so anxious to serve. And he's Called in opposite directions, and finally he just nearly loses it, and they just think this is hilarious. What's with all this? Again, is this just filler? Is this just killing time, a theme of the play? Nonetheless, I think it's. A technique that Shakespeare uses in the comedies a good deal to reflect the serious themes of the play down on the level of the low-life characters that are usually, frankly, in Shakespeare played as comic butts without any proper sense of political correctness or sensitivity, here we have the theme of divided loyalty. The result of the social fragmentation that the entire country is undergoing. The body of England is split from unified to fragmented, from harmonious to every fragment in conflict with other fragments, and even psyches are divided people of divided mind. And they virtually split this poor guy in two by their joke but on a more serious level the imagery in richard ii to play richard ii of the fall of man this is the second fall of man this is fallen time and there are more references by the way to what time it is what o'clock francis what time is it everything is split Time is awry, and it's all reflected in a joking and yet serious way. Out of this, Howe makes a very strange speech, one of those seemingly oracular throwaway speeches that we will have to look at As the play goes along, go back and look at more carefully saying that at the moment, and this is a soliloquy, I am now of all humors, all personalities or psychological complexions in other other words in Elizabethan vocabulary that have ever possessed the human race from the days of Adam. What in the world are you talking about, Hal? He's talking about trying to embody his people. Why is he hanging out with this gang? Partly political theater, partly as he has indicated in a previous soliloquy in the first act, he's going to use this, he's staging a little psychological skit. He's portraying himself as a 'er ne'er-do-well but a likable 'er ne'er-do-well, so that when he reforms later people will love him because everybody loves a reformed young man who comes into his own. It's really astute political psychology, and it does work, by the way, in a way that it could never work for his dad, who has no charisma whatsoever. He may be a competent king, but he does not have the personal factor, and Hal does at least Hal knows how to act it and use it. I am now of all humors. We saw in Richard II, the final act, the final soliloquy of Richard II, Richard trying to embody the doctrine of the king's two bodies. The king is has two bodies, his personal, body but also the king figuratively and according to doctrine is his people in a collective form and this goes back to mythological thinking reflected as I said in things like the fisher king the king is his land and when the fisher king in the grail story is wounded and sterile the land is wounded and sterile. Here it's somewhat more modernized, but it's still the doctrine. It's still, the text may be alluding to it at various points. And how seems to be trying in a quasi-realistic way to embody his people, acquainting himself with everybody, not doing what Richard did, not doing what royalty and, in fact, elite upper-class people have a tendency to do, even when it's not a monarchy and an aristocracy, and that is to be out of touch, to live in the bubble of their unprivileged life. It's the commonest complaint about the English royal family today, for that matter. They're out of touch, maybe even that they are obsolete. Hal is determined to acquaint himself and make connections, networking, to use modern lingo, with the entire body of his people, all the way down to the ones who aren't very respectable. And Richard does that, but only in his head. Richard cannot get out of himself. He is a narcissist, he's a gifted narcissist in terms of his intellect, but he is not, has no gifts for going outward. Hal does, Hal knows how to go out and make connections with other people and it is the reason that the country will indeed rally behind him. Three plays down the line. Then Falstaff comes in and we go through the expected joking and teasing of Falstaff because they know Falstaff is going to lie. And this is part of the game. They know he will lie and they know that his lies will simply, if they challenge him, get bigger and bigger. And sure enough, they do. And then they're gonna reveal themselves and then see what he says. And the role of lying and fake news is also quite a more relevant thing now than it was when I was younger reading these plays. And we will return to that point and go on the next time.